right place. If you're looking for some inspiration, if you're looking for the ability to thrive, if you want to be someplace where we believe in you, welcome to the Suicide Prevention Show. I'm Jackie Simmons. I'm the host of the show, and I am super excited because we are going on a journey, and this is not an ordinary journey. This is a journey into a world that's shocking and surprising and inspiring. And who knew that you could put all three of those things together? So I want you to help me welcome my friend Cindy Holbrook as we talk about her daughter's suicide note. And there you are, popping in. Oh my God, Cindy, thank you so much for being part of the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's definitely my pleasure. It's a great, great, great mission that you're on, and I love it. I love being a part of it. Well, we are out to have a grand time today, even though this is a challenging topic to talk about. Cindy, when I met you, I had no clue that we would be interacting on this topic. I mean, we're part of a joint venture community. <laughs> we, we met on how do you do business? How do you build business partnerships? Mm -hmm. How do you build relationships and resonance? And then we ended up connecting on this topic. Yes. What happened that made this so important to you? I would say basically, I'm trying to think of where I want to start. Um, <laughs> we've all had trauma in our lives and everybody, I think at one time or another, thinks about committing suicide. And when my own personal trauma from my childhood took heed on my personal life, um, so much happened and I wasn't able really to even be the mother that I could have been or should have been to my children. But with my daughter seeing all of the chaos that was going on in our family, how sad I was, how depressed I was, how, um, how my husband and I were, her father and I were constantly arguing and screaming that she took it all on herself, believing it was all her fault. She was 13 years old at the time. So, um, and she had went to school. I came um, and whenever I went into our den, I noticed that she had left her notebooks sitting on the table. And I thought, oh, I wonder if there's anything here that she needs at school. So I opened it up and I found her suicide note. And she was saying how much happier I would be if she wasn't there because if she was gone, her father would love me again and there wouldn't be all the turmoil, that her little brother would be happier. And she bequeathed all of her items. She bequeathed her CDs and she was just bequeathing, you know, um, her, the, her jewelry that she had. She just bequeathed everything to all these different people. So naturally, like any sane mother would do, I went to the school, pulled her out of school and took her to see um, a psychologist. Um, and that just, brought up other events in our family because her father was, is, or was a um, textbook adult child of an alcoholic who he believed not to air his dirty laundry. And the letter was so detrimental to him that he was like, it, it, he was angry at me for taking her to counseling, which is almost hard to believe. And so it was this, this whole, I think, family dynamic that, um, it changed all of our lives in so many ways. Um, and it took years to get over it. But looking back, it was like, you know, I even wonder how I didn't notice the signs with her. Oh and a few, a few years after that, I had my own plan that was thwarted by divine intervention. And so looking back at all of this, it just, it's all intertwined to all of the trauma based off of my childhood that led into um, my family life. So we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna unpack that. We're gonna unpack that, yes. We're gonna, we're gonna unpack that. 
because <laughs> that was a lot. That was a lot. A perfectly normal day interrupted by the accidental divine guidance finding yes. of a suicide note in a notebook left behind and just the, you know, the inspiration to open it, the intuition. Mm -hmm. So then you got everything that went backwards and forwards from there. Right. So, yeah. So Cindy, we, we, we'll, we'll start with that moment because right in the middle of an ordinary day is when these things happen. Right. You know, the, the things that can shift your life. You said something really, really key. You said what any sane mother would do. Mm -hmm. you know, go get your kid, take them and take them into counseling. And I'm like, oh, bless you. Uh, <laughs> because I wasn't sane. By that standard in my own parenting, I wasn't sane. I didn't take the action as decisively as you did, but we both had the same question. So I'm gonna put this out there for anybody who has ever had a child or someone close to you on that ledge or even falling off that ledge, there are not clear cut signs that you missed. What we're finding more and more is the first sign that someone's in trouble is an attempt. Mm -hmm. And they don't all survive. I got lucky, my daughter survived. You got lucky, your daughter left a note that you mm -hmm. found before she took action on it. It is not about being psychic and being so aware and there are no signs that you could miss. It is something that happens at a subconscious level within most people and then they take action and everyone is caught off guard. So the first thing I just wanna say is that as you listen to this discussion, give yourself a break and recognize that if you have lost someone, you have someone in your life who's tried or died, there wasn't something that you missed. There was only something that they were experiencing inside themselves. So that's my first comment. Now we're gonna unpack this other piece. Okay, this, this other piece was about suicidal thoughts in general. Mm -hmm. When I wrote the first draft of my TEDx talk, Cindy, I got pushback from my TEDx coach because I put into it the, the, the line that suicidal thoughts are normal, mm. that we all have them. And Freud said that they are normal. I think they're part of our natural problem-solving ability. Mm -hmm. My TEDx coach, I don't have suicidal thoughts. I've never had, and I'm like, you ever had a day you just said, I quit? <laughs> right. I mean, and that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the day that you say, I quit, and it gets hooked. Mm -hmm. That's all. The difference between the frustration exclamation of I quit and a suicidal thought is whether or not it gets hooked in the negative echo chamber of the mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you experienced getting hooked yourself. Right. What was the day like of the divine intervention? Would you take us into that day? Um, number one, I, I had just, I need to start uh, like a couple weeks before when I had went to the doctors and he could tell that I was upset or depressed or what have you. And he made me break down and I just started sobbing in his office and saying, you know, everything, it was like, I had like over 10 deaths in my immediate family and my ex's immediate family. And then going through everything with my daughter, um, my, uh, my daughter's father had said he didn't love me, but was gonna stay with me for the kids. I very, really felt alone, abandoned, orphaned. And again, my own traumatic past was playing so much a part of it. And um, I, sort of even might want to start there because I think this played so heavy into it. As, as a child, I was sexually, physically, and mentally abused by my father. And he used to keep me quiet by saying if my mother ever found out, it would kill her. She found out and the next day died of a massive heart attack. So I really had all this guilt blaming myself for her death. 
And this is what started the spiral of everything else. It was after she died, everybody else died. Uh, my daughter wrote her suicide note and my, her father and I started just really having a lot of major problems. And so a couple years, a couple years of just being so sad and so depressed, I just thought, okay, you know, it's just, I'm tired of fighting. I was tired of fighting. I was tired of trying to find happiness, of trying to find a belonging. And I really felt that everybody would be better without me. But I'm at the doctor's office and I'm, I'm not telling him specifically this, but I'm saying, I am just so tired. I can't sleep. I constantly have nightmares. I just think if I could sleep, I would feel better. So my really nice sort of stupid doctor gave me a prescription for 100 sleeping pills. And uh, naturally everywhere on the sleeping pills says, do not drink with pills. And I'm like, I do not drink. Uh, I will get drunk off of like one margarita. I'm very sensitive to any sort of drugs, alcohol, anything, just very sensitive to it. And I've always known this. So I thought, this is my way, right? The doctor just gave me my perfect way. All I need to do is drink and have these pills. So then I get home and my daughter's father's like, I'm going on a business trip for two weeks. And I'm like, ha ha. So then I asked my sister and I said, on Friday, will you pick up my kids from work after school? And because um, I just want to be alone for the weekend. And then on Monday after work, I'll pick them up because I figured if I took my sleeping pills and drank Friday night, nobody would be expecting me till Monday, which was way long enough for uh, me to be gone. And so my plan worked. And so I, I left work. I went to the liquor store. I bought some orange juice and vodka. I came home. I poured the orange juice and vodka, put it on my kitchen counter, took my sleeping pills, put them on the uh, kitchen counter. And thought I want to die comfortable. I don't want to die, you know, in my work clothes. So I went and put on my pajamas and there's a knock on my door. And so I answer it. And it's this lady that had just started working where I worked. And she said, I was just driving by and thought that I would, you know, come and chat with you. And we talked till two o'clock in the morning. I, we never talked about me killing myself, but by the time she left, my desire was gone. On Monday, whenever I went to work, I asked my best friend, Liz, I said, where's Mary? She goes, who's Mary? And I go, the girl that just started working here last week. She's like, there's no Mary here, Cindy. There's nobody here that started working here by that name. I'm like, Liz, there is. I, I, we talked, we had lunch with her last week. And Liz is like, Cindy, we did not have lunch with anybody, just you and I, as always. And I'm like arguing with her. And I even went to our boss and said, isn't there somebody here named Mary? And my boss is like, no, there's nobody here by that name. And I'm like, this is strange. And then Liz, she's like, Cindy, think about it. She's going, nobody. She didn't, Liz didn't quite have the grasp of what had happened yet. But she goes, Cindy, think about it. Nobody just stops by your house. You live two miles off the main road on a dirt road. There's like nobody that's just going to happen to drive by. And, you know, it was I was so out of it, I didn't even put like that one simple piece together. And I was like, wow, you know, it definitely was an angel that came and visited me and just talked to me. And for whatever reason, all of my desire went away. Um, and that's actually what put me on my path to so much of my healing. It's what put me on the path to my self journey, to accepting my past and to having such a big desire to help other people, um, both in business and in life. It was, you know, I went into social services for a career, which is what I left when I became a coach. So it was just all about helping people that regardless, you know, some people think my trauma is so bad as a child and everything that I endured um, after my mother died and everything that I went through, but we've all had traumatic past. We all have things and we're the ones that rank them, but there is no rank. The way that I felt from everything that happened to me is just the way somebody else might feel 
from somebody yelling at them or somebody rejecting them. You know, it's a traumatic feeling and they're all the same. Something else, when I first started getting depressed, and this was right around the time my daughter wrote her suicide note, we had a really good friend named David and David also was depressed and David and I, we connected to each other. We would like, you know, misery loves company. We would hang out. We just, we were so connected. David actually spent some time in a mental institution and they had given him Prozac. It was whenever Prozac was first introduced in the early nineties. And his wife kept telling the doctors David is not right with this medication. He's hitting me and he's never hit me in 20 years. And uh, they lived by Knott's Berry Farm. And he kept telling everybody, me included, but hey, I was all for it because I was in the same boat as him, that he was going to jump off uh, the, the bridge. I can't remember the name of the street, but it's right there by Knott's Berry Farm. He was going to jump onto the 91 freeway and that's how he was going to do it. And he was telling everybody this. And the doctors would not recommit him. She, his wife tried to get him recommitted. They just wouldn't. And so one morning he just woke up and said, today's the day. He jumped up, went to run out of his house. His son, Willie, who was 17 at the time, started chasing him and um, called his mom and then started chasing him. And so Willie was like four feet away from David whenever David jumped over the bridge. Wow. And I, you know, being, I, we were such good friends, but my thought, because I was in such a mode was, wow, I wished I was as brave as David. And it's really sad to know, to, to think that that's how far gone I was, that I seen his act as bravery because I was in the same boat as him. There's a moment when unhappiness slides into helplessness and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And it is that break, that moment that we can intervene. For you, it was actually an angel. Right. Like, I'm gonna point out something that's gonna freak out some people. There's <laughs> a moment where being chicken is good for you. It was good huh. for you not to be brave, okay? Right. I have a friend who says that she's 92, dealing with all of the impact of isolation mm -hmm. and lack of mobility. And she says the only reason she has not attempted suicide is because she's too scared. And mm -hmm. I'm like, good. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment where fear is your friend and being chicken is a good thing. So mm -hmm. let's, for all of us who've chickened out, um, let's just go with celebration. And, right. And, and it is, it's, it's, but you've hit when, it you know, I, I had told you before, I know whenever we chatted, it was, wasn't too long after my, or after my divine intervention, um, I got a new job and it was really, it was social services. And my boss and I became super, super close. And she's who I always call my first coach, my first mentor. Um, but she kept telling me that my life was my choice. And that was huge for me because up until that point, I had lived for everybody else. And it was even the reason why I contemplated suicide because I felt like I had no choice. I felt like, you know, I felt like everybody that I had loved, I mean, experiencing so many deaths. And by this time, my daughter was acting up, which even after her suicide note, her father took her to McDonald's and told her some very negative things about me and told her he didn't want her to turn out like me. And so this, like, she's a very stubborn girl. And it, it sort of, she said, it made me hate dad and made me love you more, but it made <laughs> me want to make dad's life miserable. So she became a very rebellious teenager. I mean, she got into so much stuff, but it was a lot easier, I guess. It, it definitely easier on me dealing with all the crap that she did as a teenager with, um, versus, her actually going through and committing suicide. But that like was her purpose to live after her suicide note. It was like, I'm gonna get back a dad, right? And <laughs> that's funny. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I trained suicide prevention advocates. And one of the things that we train them to ask is what are your reasons for staying? Mm -hmm. And the idea that one of your daughter's reasons for staying was to make her father's life miserable. I'm like, 
yes, you know, um, and I've got two ex-husbands, so I'm going, they have a use, they have a purpose, you know, it's good. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, and some of the things that he told her, even that night, sometimes still haunts her today, because he just was not nice about it. And again, he was like, you just think I'm so terrible, and you think I'm causing everything, you know, and, um, you know, I think a lot of but, you know, but hey, I played my part too. I can't say it was a hundred percent him because we were a family unit and, uh, you know, we, we understood things differently. And he was the type of person that, like I said, he was an adult child of an alcoholic. If you have ever read the textbook on adult child of an alcoholic, that was him, 100%. Um, so it, he could be very difficult for that, but it, it just, when I, again, going back to whenever I met my boss and her telling me, Cindy, your life is your choice. At first I thought the woman was totally nuts. I mean, this was actually like two months after my thought of suicide attempt, right? After I had my divine intervention, my guide, I it was, I was still not better. You know, I just had lost that desire. I had hope. I had Mm -hmm. you know that something somehow had to change yep um and and whenever she told me that i did i told her you're crazy i said i didn't ask for my mother to die i didn't ask for my father to abuse me i didn't ask for um earl to not love me i didn't ask for my grandmother and my father to die i didn't ask for earl's brother to get murdered i definitely didn't ask for amy to to be at this time, she was being very rebellious to be, you know, so rebellious and, and getting into all the trouble that she was in. I'm like, I didn't ask for any of this. So how can you say it's my choice? Right. And, and I always call this period of my time, like probably from the day my mom died up until after I met Carol, my hell years, because not because I did, I felt like nothing could change. There was no hope. And that I was just there to serve other people and they were there to walk on me and do whatever they wanted with me. And so for her to tell me this, and she gave me books to read, she gave me um, cassette tapes to listen to in my car. And I started realizing, and also she had me read A Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm like, wow, okay, well, all this crap, yeah, I can't control none of that stuff, but I can control the way that I think of it. And I can, and I can't actually rewrite my past, but I can rewrite the way I think of my past. And it started my healing journey, which gave me the courage and the confidence to leave my ex-husband um, and to start a new life. Yeah, there's so much there. This concept of we cannot rewrite the past, but we can start where we are and rewrite the future. Yes. We can change yes. the trajectory of our life. Yes. And so you had intervention from more than one source. And sometimes mm. we get the opportunities to have our lives change and we're not aware and we don't mm. step into them, but they come back. Right. They, they yeah. come back because that's how the universe is designed. Um, you know, the, the feather, the stick or the brick. You know, if you if you are listening for the nudges, they're like feather taps and you you're paying attention. That level of awareness sometimes doesn't come naturally. Um, for me, you know, the stick might have gotten my attention. But one of the biggest breaks in my pattern took a brick. It took literally me breaking um, bones in my leg mm -hmm. before yeah. I had the pause long enough to stop being busy and actually be able to shift something in my mm -hmm. world. So I am just super delighted that you know, Carol yeah. came into your life and gave yeah. you perspective and then gave you some tools because mm -hmm. mindset is a thing. It's a new word in our vocabulary, people. We used to just call it attitude. Right. <laughs> now we call it mindset. Either way, it's yours to control. You know, mm -hmm. it's the one thing that you have control over and yeah. getting some really good tools. Yeah. So I, do, I want to add a little bit though. I mean, we can't re, we definitely can't <laughs> rewrite our past, but we can change 
our perspective about it. And that I think is like so huge. It's, it's like, um, you know, different things happen to me sometimes where I'm even shocked where some of these layers of proverbial onion um, gets unpeeled because of the abuse I endured as a child. But number one, I thought it was normal. So it wasn't traumatic to me at the time. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized how much stuff was bad. But my father was a very intricate part of our lives until the day my mother died. Um, you know, so he was always around my daughter, he and everything. And my daughter, you know, a couple of years ago, because we're unsure if he ever did anything to her. She remembers being very afraid of him. She remembers she never wanted to be around him unless her brother, or her cousins was with her, but she doesn't remember anything actually happening. So we're just unsure. But she asked me, she's like, mom, knowing what he did to you, how could you let him be around me? And I was like, I was in denial and I have to accept that fact. And I can't beat myself up over the fact that I actually put my daughter in danger because I was in 100% complete denial that, that he wasn't going to do it to her or that I was protecting her. But because my entire life, I was brought up with the lie that it was my job to protect my mother. That's what I kept doing even as an adult which created you know, all kinds of craziness in my life and in my beliefs because everything that I did from the time I can remember till the day my mother died was to protect her without even thinking because it had drilled into me so much how it was affecting my daughter. And that's something my current husband, he says all the time, he's like, how did Earl let your father be around Amy knowing what knew, knowing what he knew? And I'm like, the thing is, again, going back to he was an adult child of well, an I'm alcoholic. Not, you I'm, don't air your dirty laundry. <laughs> well, okay. So we're, we're going to call it what it is. People <laughs> do what they do. And as soon as we can stop the insanity of trying to assign motivations to other people's actions, and we go with True. what can happen now that's better. Yeah. And yeah. I'm a firm believer in that because the labels that we put on ourselves and on other people limit us so much. And it limits our ability to work with other people because we've made a certain set of prejudgments, a certain mm -hmm. amount of prejudice about them because of the labels. And so this is a wonderful possibility for us to imagine a world without labels. Imagine a world where we are able to be aware of our actions and instead of looking for why am I doing this, we go to what could make this better. And yes. I'm all about the shift from the why to the what. So, you know, mm -hmm. coming out of that, what made it better for you, Cindy? And again, going back to Carol, it was so much with Carol. I mean, she was um, such a huge part of my life. As I said, she gave me all these things, but she actually became... I became very close to her, I was a very close mentor. Now, I had said I felt all alone, but she would constantly ask me, what would you do if Earl left? Where would you live? How would you take care of yourself? You know, what is it that you wanna do? You know, what stops you? Um, you know, even, you know, whenever Amy was being so rebellious, you know, she's like, as a parent, some you have to be careful because sometimes your punishments to them punish you more, right? whenever they're teenagers, but she would, she would go through like so many different scenarios, which first of all, helped me to see a broader picture of life. Like it wasn't black and white. It wasn't just this one road that I actually had choices. And she would just talk to me about all these different choices that I had and always ask me questions. What would I do? How would I think? Who did I want to be? How would I act different? And, you know, that whenever you start thinking that way, how do I want to be? It's mm -hmm. so completely different. And you do start, 
you know, I started building confidence for the very first time in my life um, because I never had it before I met her. You know, I used to think I was, but I really wasn't confident because I was just confident that I could do what everybody else told me to do. But I wasn't confident in my own abilities. I definitely was not confident in my own thoughts or my own decisions. Um, it was so bad that, I mean, I used to phone up my ex-husband at work and go, hey, I don't feel good today. Do you think I should stay home from work? I mean, it's like I did not make very many decisions because I always wanted that. Yeah, that's okay. You should do that. So to grow out of that, it, it wasn't overnight, but it definitely all started whenever Carol told me that my life was my choice. And she stepped in as my mentor, as my friend, as my coach, and showed me what to look at, what to read, and constantly asking me questions uh, that got my mind thinking of possibilities. Whenever you start having those possibilities in your life, mm -hmm. that gives you hope. Oh, and, it, and it makes you believe, yeah, I can do it. I can do this. And, um, you know, it's amazing to me whenever I look at where I am today versus where I was then, because I have such a completely different type of life. And I've seen other people who never have gotten that encouragement, that spark of hope that they can make their lives better. They you haven't know, met their mentor yet. In right? social services, there's this one girl, I'll never forget this girl. She came into the office one time and she said, oh, Johnny's getting out of prison. So he's gonna be moving back in with me next week. And I'm like, okay, just, you know, and she's like, I know you think I'm stupid. And she just straightened my eye. She looked at me, she said that because she knew that I knew that Johnny was in prison for trying to kill her. Mm -hmm. And she knew that I knew that. And I, I said, you are not stupid. I said, you are a beautiful person. And whenever you realize that you don't deserve to be treated that way, that's when you will leave him. And she just, her eyes lit up and she goes, you don't think I'm stupid? You don't, because everybody, and I see that even whenever somebody's depressed, oh, just get over, you know, I mean, if they're depressed or down, they're suicidal, just get over it that's or whatever. The, that's um, the top thing never to say to somebody who's depressed. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, and, and because I told her that she was smart and beautiful and that one day she would make the decision, her eyes just lit because everybody was telling her she was stupid. And I'm like, she wasn't a stupid person. She was in her own life, in her own mind, not seeing opportunities, not seeing what could change. And it was about a, two years later, she came back in the office and she had left him and was really doing so much better in her life. And she thanked me just from that one statement that I did, because I was the only one that didn't tell her she was stupid. And it's, it's I see that like, as children, sometimes, what do we tell our kids? My father, he was not a nice person, but I remember my, whenever I was 15, I had this boyfriend, he broke up with me and it was the end of my world. And he just started yelling and screaming at me that I didn't know what love was. And, and I had no right to be sad because my boyfriend broke up with me. And when we think that our children's problems aren't that big, because, because you're seeing them as an adult perspective, it's like, dig back to whenever you were younger, you know, <laughs> if, if, if- The reality about perspective. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge, huge thing. And wow. All right, there's a lot here that we can go into, Cindy. The, the journey that you have <laughs> is, is, is very inspiring and it has been full of these moments. Mm -hmm. where either someone came in and because of something they did or said, your trajectory changed. Yes. Then you have this experience where someone came back to you and said, because of what you said, my trajectory changed. Yes. And if there is a message for the world, it is the fact that you may be somebody's angel. Right, exactly. You know, you just might, anybody listening to this, either live or recorded, mm -hmm. you might be somebody's angel mm -hmm. just by you showing up 
and being you. Mm-hmm. It's not a strategy. It's not a thought pre pre-planned. That conversation with this young woman was just, this was the right thing to you in the moment to let her know that one day she will decide she's good enough to make a different choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the lesson that I had to learn was that mm-hmm. I was good enough to make a different choice. And so yes. that's good enough theme is really important to me. And that's mm-hmm. how I lay everything out. Whatever we get done is good enough. Yeah. It's, and I think too, you know, you talk that, you know, being an angel, you know, with different people. And I had talked about my friend Liz. I actually, Liz started working my work like the week my mother died and we just hooked up. And I've always said that you, she was an angel to me. Um, and she helped simply because she let me cry when I needed to cry. She let me laugh whenever I wanted to laugh. She listened to my dreams. She listened to my rants. She listened to all of my trials, you know, that I was going through. Um, she also was so very wise that one time, because my mother died in exactly one week later, Earl told me he didn't love me, but was going to stay with me for the kids. And it was about two years later, Liz goes, Cindy, you know that you can never mention your mother dying without mentioning Earl not loving you. And you can never mention Earl not loving you without mentioning your mom dying. These are two different griefs. They have nothing to do with each other. You need to separate them and deal with them separately. And I've seen with, you know, so many people that I've coached over the years and my clients in social services that we tend to, whenever things happen in a close proximity of time, we connect to them all. And we need to, I always say we have all these emotions like this yarn, this this, um, big ball of, of yarn that's all tangled up and you have to start taking out each individual emotion because they're not one we make them one and pretty soon we're going to find that one strand that's going to make the rest of them just fall apart and uh and because it's all these packed emotions that we pack up that have to do with you know one or more incidences and whenever you're in that mode and the more you have that packed up i think the more depressed and and sad you become thinking there is no hope where you start backing up. Yeah, it's an interesting thought that mm-hmm. the more we lump it all together, mm-hmm. the more power we're actually giving it. Yes. And, and it's it, yeah, the logic says, no, if I put it all together, I can put it in a box and I can put it in the closet and it won't bother mm-hmm. me anymore. But, but it's like it amplifies the more mm-hmm. we pack it all together. So the individual pieces of our life can be related, but they don't have to be causal and they don't have to be combined. Right. They don't and it's our emotions, our emotions mm-hmm. were the ones that's combining them from our emotions mm-hmm. because we think, well, I felt this way from this one and I felt this way with this well, one. It, and I mean, thank God, yeah. this is the way the human brain works. If yeah. it didn't associate things, you would <laughs> never be able to apply one lesson to a new yeah. situation. Yeah. So the brain is designed to associate. Yeah. The challenge is when it's done unconsciously around mm-hmm. um, constricting emotions, around yeah. what we call negative mm-hmm. emotions, low energy emotions, mm-hmm. whatever the language of mindset of the day is. Yes. We're talking about places that don't feel good. <laughs> the emotions that don't feel good. You know, when we hook all of those together and allow them to compile. So what's your favorite strategy for unpacking emotions? And it, 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 it just, it exactly is. And number one, we don't feel our, our feelings, you know? And I mean, journaling definitely helps, but what has always helped me, and you know, I was a divorce coach for about seven, eight years before I became the visibility whiz. So, and I used to always have so many of my clients do this exercise. I had this one client, she was so cute because she told me, I don't want to hear the word forgiveness. Don't ever tell me to forgive my ex-husband because I will never forgive him. And all I did was have her do this exercise And about a month later, she's like, wow, I forgave him, right? It just, uh, 
because we don't allow ourselves to feel the emotions and we do tangle them up. We do intermix them. So my favorite method really of untangling them is to write down all the emotions you have. Um, and if you say like, it's not an emotion, it's a belief. So if you say, I feel like, you're talking about a belief you have, which you have to put into a, another area to deal with that belief. But if you say, I feel angry at Earl for not understanding what Amy's going through, or I, I'm angry at myself because I caused my mother's death. I mean, I actually honestly thought that, um, you know, I feel sad because Earl doesn't love me. I, um, being able to write and, and so, so, but after you write it down, it's more because you write down all of these things. And usually a lot of these are the surface emotions, but whenever you start saying them, and I believe this so hard, and I still do this to this day, whenever I'm dealing with something is you have to say that out loud for five to 10 minutes straight and watch how it's going through your body because your head will hurt, your stomach will hurt, you'll tense up, but just say, you know, I feel sad my mother died. I feel sad my mother died. I feel sad my mother died. And you start feeling all these emotions inside of your body and you just let them be. And most people will start crying because you're actually allowing the emotions to come out of your body and release them. And the more you do this, each time you do this exercise, then you, you really start releasing it. And you want to get to the point where you can say, you know, I'm sad that my mother died without having all the tense emotions. I mean, you know, my mother died in 1992. And I learned this strategy dealing with my mother's death in 2010. So I still had so much emotion wrapped up with my mom dying. But I can say, you know, I'm sad my mom died. I'm sad she's gone. I wish she was here. And it really, I don't have that same type of emotion that I used to have. My stomach doesn't tighten up. My head doesn't hurt. It's and no longer that's, part of the ball of yarn. It's no longer part of the ride. So, so the what happens a lot of times is you think it's one thing mm -hmm. and then you start thinking something else you'll start saying this emotion and something else is going to pop up you don't necessarily want to change that emotion as you're saying it out loud but mm -hmm. you want to write it down and so whenever you start going through all these things that you write down something will start just unravel it and it's almost like magical like overnight like wow because this is one of the core emotions that's been feeding all the rest of them. So I want to put this into a real simple package for people, okay? Or actually for me, all right? Let's, let's <laughs> make it really simple for Jackie's brain here. Step one is notice that I'm feeling an emotion and write it down. Yes. Step two is read it out loud multiple times how many times is a good number to just for i for i don't go by numbers i go more by minutes okay. at least five minutes up to no more than 15 minutes five to 15 minutes okay and so so step one notice it and write it down step two read it over and over again out loud I love that because it gets to more of the ability to sense things if we're using our ears as well as our, our brains um, and we're using our mouth. So this is great. It engages a lot of senses. So read it out loud, five to 15 minutes. And then what? How do you wrap that up? If you, you said know, if another emotion by, comes by up, the end of yet. the, I will, if other emotions come up, I write it down. I just let it go. I mean, I just move on with my day. You know, you can do, you know, I usually will just do deep breaths, but, you know, I'll do my, I don't know what you call that, you know, whenever you do this, like, I know it's some sort of yoga pose where you, yeah, I mean, I, it's part of, part of a yoga pose. I look <laughs> But I, I will, I, it's just something I do ah. just to take a couple of deep breaths and go, you know, I'm totally okay in this moment in time because that brings me back to my present. And then 
one of the key things about saying it out loud and versus reading it too is why why do all these emotions get stuck in us number the main reason is because we're afraid to verbalize them so whenever we whenever you verbalize them it you're you're actually getting it out of your body if you're reading it it stays in your body and so the whole act of verbalizing it is to get that emotion out of your body that's really key and i like that a lot okay so step one is notice it and write it down mm -hmm. step two is read it out loud over and over again for five to 15 minutes mm -hmm. step three is write down anything new that came up just any other emotion that's new and then step four, I loved what you said. So acknowledging out loud, mm -hmm. I'm totally okay in this moment in time. Yes. That was a lovely, lovely statement. So mm -hmm. ending it with the affirmation, the acknowledgement that I'm okay in mm -hmm. this moment in time. There's a lot of wonderful juiciness in that. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to put it into such a simple system, Cindy, is such a great gift for mm -hmm. everyone listening. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. You're very welcome. Also, you don't need to, if you have like whatever is going on, you don't need to wait per se. You don't need to say, I acknowledge like right now I'm angry because, right? Mm -hmm. But you can sit down actually, you know, and just like if you're journaling, but just sit down and just say, I feel, I feel, and write whatever comes to your mind because you may be surprised how many you can come up with. I mean, I've had people come up with a hundred emotions, like I feel, I feel, I feel. But again, it's very important that if you say, I feel like, I feel like he should treat me better, that's a belief and it's a whole different strategy. So you don't use the I feel likes and verbalizing it. That's wonderful. Okay, so clarity around this. I feel rather than I feel like. Yes. Cool, 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 cool. Okay, so as we have a minute, I want to just acknowledge both what you just gave us and what you have that you are giving to everyone else because mm -hmm. your five power steps take and take this basis of some emotional resilience practices and take them into playing bigger in your life and i just loved that you had all of that together so katie's going to pop that into the chat for everyone and the benefit of five power steps you were talking about standing unapologetically tall you yeah. know and i loved that language authentically and unapologetically mm -hmm. and i think that those two things are not often put together in the same sentence and that they need to be mm -hmm. you know authenticity i think really requires being unapologetic about our past Mm -hmm. about the aspects of who we are, how we got here, mm -hmm. and about what we want. I think that maybe we're coming into a space and a time where it's going to be okay to not apologize for the fact that we are thriving or even right. that we want to thrive. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I put the title of this show, this season as how to thrive is because I'm seeing thriver guilt, Cindy. I'm seeing people who are afraid to say I'm doing okay because mm -hmm. the messages that we're getting is that everybody's in trouble. Well, no, not everybody's in trouble. No. Yeah, not everybody's having a down day. What mm -hmm. if you owned your great day and shared that with the world and became part of the solution, part of the expanding positive emotional trends rather than keeping it a secret. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of being unstanding, unapologetically tall. So thank you. That is an awesome, awesome gift. And I You're really welcome. Thank it. you. And it will be in the show notes for anybody who is listening to this in the recordings. You can look for it there. Mm -hmm. Cindy. 
if there's one thing that you could share with people on this topic of believing in themselves and thriving, what would it be? Uh, definitely, as you just said, then apologetically tall, but it's just know that you don't have to apologize for who you are. And whenever you gain the confidence in yourself that it's okay to be you, I, you know, you can write a bill of rights. You have the right to be treated fairly. You have the right to be treated too nicely. You have the right to your own opinion. So often, and we have the right to say no, and no was a complete sentence. So often, I see so many people even not thriving in their business because of the confidence that they lack because of whatever's happened to them in the past. And so if um, whenever I thought of that stand unapologetically tall, there's this crazy tree that I can see outside of my office window. It's my neighbor's tree. And it, um, I didn't have a neighbor for over 10 years. And this tree has grown so big and it's not the prettiest tree in the world. And I mean, just branches going all over the place. And one day I was sitting on my porch meditating. I looked up at that tree and I'm like, it just stands there unapologetically. And it just stands tall. And it just says, here I am. And I'm like, what if, you know, we did that as people? We don't care about all these flaws. We don't care that our branches are all weird or, you know, we have branches half broken falling into the street. And, you know, it just doesn't care. And it's still brings beauty it still you know it still has it's it's green it brings shade it stands there with all of its beauty even though it really is not a pretty tree <laughs> and that's how we should and, be in life and in business you know i'm thinking authentically and unapologetically tall means that somebody else's opinion of that tree doesn't impact that tree at all <laughs> that's true <laughs> What if we lived our life where somebody else's opinion of us as our tree didn't impact us at all? What a great note to end on. Cindy. There is a quote. I can. I don't know who said it, but it was other people's opinion of me is none of my business. And I love that quote because it isn't. It's so hard to grasp, but it's so very true. So very true. All right. So on that note, authentically you and unapologetically tall and allowing other people's opinions of you to be none of your business. There we go. Got it. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. You are a blessing. I appreciate you and all that you do. Thank you for being part of the show. Stay right there. The ride gets more interesting from here. <laughs>